Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 festival podcast, The Great Word Debate, proudly presented by Milford Asset Management. Join MC Joe Bennett for this outrageous festival institution, guaranteed to entertain and provoke. This year, we gave you a stellar international lineup with Scottish crime writer Denise Minor, comedian Michelle A. Court, and satirist David Slack on one side, and novelist Paula Morris, cartoonist Tom Scott, and American thriller writer and editor Daniel Mallory, aka AJ Finn, on the other. The moot was that you should be free to choose your own adventure. A raucous night of argument and repartee ensued. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together to welcome your MC for the evening, me! Oh, oh, oh. oh my God! Uh, my name's Joe Bennett. I'm the MC for this evening. Lovely to see you out. Oh God, I can see some familiar faces and some strange ones. Oh, some very strange ones. But lovely to see you. Welcome to the debate, the uh, the, the great word debate, the origins of which stretch back into the mists of about 2010, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot have a debate without debaters. So, in order to rev them up, please welcome, without hesitation, the debaters. Look at them, look at them, what specimens of humanity. Look at them, there's more, they're still coming. My God. Oh, every one of them a household name, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Fire a few. Um, I won't bother to run through them now, metaphorically speaking. I will run through them later. Um, As they can't to speak, you'll get a little potted biography of each one. The debate, ladies and gentlemen, you can't have a debate without a motion. And uh, the motion for tonight's debate, which I think I can say without any hesitation, beats all motions for impenetrability and lack of memorable definition, ladies and gentlemen. This is the motion that they are to hug to their bosom through their speeches. And it is less emotion than a loose bowel movement. But we'll see what they can do with it, ladies and gentlemen. That you should be free to choose your own adventure. No, I've no idea what it means either. But, we, and we won't find out by the end. Um, the pattern of the debate is a standard pattern of all debates. All speakers have um, up to about eight minutes if they wish to make their point. Uh, summarizers at the end get three minutes each. Heckling is not only permitted, it's fiercely encouraged. Relevance will be punished. Um, Entertainment is the order of the day. And um, so we will begin with the lead speaker of the affirmative team, ladies and gentlemen, who have come up here. Wait, 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 wait. She needs an introduction. A world writer, ladies and gentlemen. She has lived in the UK, in the US, in Iowa, in New York, in Sheffield, in Auckland, no less. She has had residences in Denmark, Italy, Brussels, all over the world. She was shortlisted, ladies and gentlemen, for the richest short story competition in the globe. Did she win? Well, she's here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Dr. No Less, Paula Morris.
Kia Christchurch. I am Paula Morris, International Woman of Mystery. I've flown down to Christchurch from Auckland, a distant land, specifically to argue this important case, whatever it is, Joe said it just now, because adventure. Where would New Zealand be without it? To the tourists who form our entire national economy, we are the adventure playground of the world. We invented bungee jumping. We invented driving in speedboats along rivers. We invented hobbits going on dangerous searches for, what was it, ring? Matter, matter? In Wellington Airport, whatever. Hobbits, like possums, are the very definition of adventure. Smallish, furry things from Australia who risk their lives every time they leave home. <laughs> but I digress. The topic tonight isn't just adventure, which we can all agree from my fully formed argument that I've just presented, is a patriotic pursuit. Essential to our national economy and our self-identity. No, the topic tonight is also freedom. And where would New Zealand be without that? We congratulate ourselves on freedom, don't we? On various anniversaries every year. Freedom to be colonized on Waitangi Day. Freedom to give people the vote who should have had it in the first place. <laughs> freedom to be killed in wars on the other side of the world, in Monia Dominion, whatever. We love our freedom here. Now, for like that other land of the free, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we should be free, that we should be free to choose, that we should have adventures, and that we should choose our own adventures. See how I'm working the mutin? <laughs> Only the very foolish people of the opposing team would argue differently, and let's be clear, they're only arguing because they drew the short straw in this debate. <laughs> the theme of the word festival this year is adventurous. So obviously the festival wants them to fail. We all do. Because if they succeed, we'll return New Zealand to the dark era of carless days. And the sheep in every schoolroom, make no mistake, that's what they want, especially Denise Minna, she's from Glasgow. She's virtually a criminal. Now, here on the affirmative side, which is the more glamorous side of the room, we will argue in favor of freedom, in favor of choice, and in favor of adventure. They will argue against freedom, i.e. for tyranny. They will argue against choice, i.e. for homogeneity. They will argue against adventure, i.e. for boredom. Tyranny, homogeneity, and boredom. Is that the kind of New Zealand you want? Will tourists still want to come to that sad and gloomy place? Will hobbits, wizards, and Orlando blooms still roam our mountains and meadows? Will the classic New Zealand TV program, Border Patrol, be able to survive? <laughs> Please think of all these dire prospects before you're lured by the trickery of the negative side, by their talk of life's too long and you only live once, but that's okay. They are sad and desperate people, especially David Slack, Michelle. In another era, they would have had their names on the Wanganui computer. <laughs> oh, it's an old audience, isn't it? <laughs> 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 
Ladies and gentlemen, consider the founding of New Zealand, the waka that voyaged across the Pacific following the stars with the greatest of adventures, exploration, sailing into the unknown, and our ua pakeha, Captain Cook. Remember the names of his ships? Endeavour, adventure, discovery. Um, symbolism? <laughs> Cook made the mistake of finally sailing in a ship called HMS Resolution, the kind of blah ship name that the opposing side would choose. <laughs> and what happened to him? The Hawaiians killed him. <laughs> Risk, danger, and adventure are written into our national psyche. They're essential to our foundation stories, to our history. Without Maui's exploits, the sun would still zoom across the sky and the North Island would lie under the sea. Now, some of you bastards might think <laughs> that the latter is a good thing, but just to remind you, that would mean no Hobbiton, no Partea Māori Club, no Jacinda Ardern's baby. <laughs> a truly dreadful proposition. Now, think of some of our other national icons. Sir Edmund Hillary, you've heard of him, right? He called his book about the ascent of Everest, High Adventure. Richie McCaw, I believe you may have heard of him, he competes every year for no reason in the multi-day God's Own Adventure Race. Taika Waititi is already planning what he calls his next adventure film, a follow-up to Thor Ragnarok. Unfortunately, we have no national icons with us tonight. I know. They are busy being free. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say they're busy being free and adventurous elsewhere. <laughs> now, on the affirmative side, we have very persuasive arguments, and I would say from the top intellectuals today, or at least the ones we could find in the Crown Plaza Hotel. <laughs> now, Tom Scott, so venerated, his wife has shouted out his name. <laughs> He will argue that even a lifelong coward such as himself can embrace adventure, especially, he said, the kind that doesn't overwhelm your blood pressure medication. <laughs> and he will also argue that choice is essential to the most successful and satisfying of adventures. Now, our third speaker, Dan Mallory, will broaden the argument into the international sphere, i.e. to talk about himself. And who better to talk about adventure than someone who writes thrillers? Dan's latest book, he told us today, not skiting at all, is the biggest selling novel in the world right now. Oh. I will be marrying him later. Um, <laughs> So on the affirmative side, what I'm saying is we have the world expert on thrilling right there. And as Dan pointed out, had he not had the freedom to choose that particular adventure of selling his, selling his film rights for a million dollars, he would not be rich and famous today. <laughs> now, this is a writer's festival, and I'd like to bring in a more serious note for just one moment by quoting a writer I really admire, Deborah Eisenberg. 
She has talked about the intense joys of both reading and writing. The great pleasure of being alive, she says, is to experience life. That is both your interior world and the world around you in a way you haven't. You can keep that up for a lifetime, a constant adventure. Now, the negative side may tell you that constant adventure sounds exhausting. <laughs> they want to be tucked up in bed with a weak cup of tea, probably in a Rover's Return mug. <laughs> Feeling fatigued and a little bit afraid. The door is locked and bolted. The night lights on. Soft music they haven't chosen is piped in. What's that I hear? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> yes, they think that's right. Freedom is scary, choice is scary, adventure is scary. Better to cower under the covers. I was going to say they're Peppa Pig duvet, but I thought, I think Peppa Pig goes on adventures. They wouldn't like that. But hang on, they're in their bed. What's that shape outside the window? That's right. It's the ghost of Sir Edmund Hillary judging them. <laughs> Get out of bed, he hisses. Stop being scared of everything. Go off and have an adventure. But what should we do, Sir Ed, they bleat. Where should we go? For God's sake, says Sir Ed. You're a grown-up. You are born in God's own country. You're free, free to choose your own adventure. Not my words, ladies and gentlemen. The words of Sir Edmund Hillary. <laughs> oh, the best-selling author in the world has run away. Um, Wonderful, Paula. Thank you very much. Um, uh, first, the first speaker of the negative team, ladies and gentlemen, uh, had an unfortunate upbringing. She was brought up in a sporting family. Um, Michelle A. Court, her parents, uh, squash and tennis. Um, <laughs> some of you will get that on the way home. Don't worry about it. Uh, had been funny all their... Had been uh, athletic all their lives, but she... She... Well... The name, the word a in French means two, and the name court in French means short. Um, so she took to being funny instead, ladies and gentlemen. And she has been funny all over the world roughly 10 years ago. She was uh, um, given the title of New Zealand Comedian of the Decade. which means, alarmingly for you, that it's just about wearing off now. <laughs> well, there's very little she hasn't done, ladies and gentlemen. She's an author, she's a columnist, she's a good stick, and she's bloody funny. Please welcome Michelle Accord. <laughs> Delightful, uh, and it's true. I am, I am quite short. Most of the time, I, I don't mind about that. Occasionally, it gets a little bit embarrassing. You know, go to kiss somebody hello, and if they're very tall, you can accidentally give them a blowjob. So, <laughs> I just thought I'd set the tone for my team. All good. All good. All good. 
Um, so, Steph, Steph, uh, no, it's all good. So we we are delighted to be here on this on this wild adventure with you tonight because that's what this is. It's an adventure uh, which we, Denise and David and myself, define as an exciting experience, a daring enterprise, and a hazardous high-risk activity. This is the kind of adventure that we all love when it's thrust upon us by publishers and agents and Rachel King, <laughs> who is very persuasive. And I'll be honest, Paula is almost right that uh, if I could choose my own adventure right now, I'd be tucked up in bed with a good book or someone who's read one. But... <laughs> But he's in Auckland, and I signed a contract, so here we are. <laughs> because that's the thing, left to our own devices, we so often choose something less scary, more comfortable, less courageous than we might be capable of. Paula's argument is fatally flawed. She says that we'll be better at some appealing adventure that we choose for ourselves, not the ones that are thrust upon us. And I get it, you know, when it comes to most things, most things I'm pro-choice, be who you are, love who you love, embrace your right to self-determination. But it's the surprises, right? It's the serendipities. It's the collision of people and events out of our control that makes our lives big and rich and entertaining. It wasn't careful planning that gave us Jacinda Ardern's baby. <laughs> So, so let me tell you a, a little story about an adventure that I didn't choose, but this is where I think my favorite stories come from. Uh, uh, one of the things that I do sometimes is I emcee dinners, and I was emceeing a dinner. I won't tell you where it was. Uh, it was a few months ago, and there was a guest speaker, and I won't tell you who he was, but his name rhymes with Graham Henry. And... <laughs> And he was a little tired and emotional, and so much so that they asked me if I would introduce him earlier than uh, originally planned, because <laughs> otherwise he was going to fall over. And um, now, I know this is treasonous, but I'm not fantastically into rugby. Uh, I know this is the wrong town to mention that in, but uh, forgive me, forgive me. But uh, so I didn't watch the last Rugby World Cup. Now, fortunately, um, the man whose name rhymes with Graham Henry uh, gave us a play-by-play -play description of the winning game. Just the first half, because he only had 40 minutes. And <laughs> so I was sitting at a table with seven complete strangers, and uh, I, I, I wasn't possibly having the time of my life. So I, underneath the table, very quietly, I was texting my husband at home. And at the, I didn't really think anybody noticed. I was being very careful about it. And at the end of the dinner, the woman sitting next to me clutched her pearls and said, you should be ashamed. You were texting all the way through that speech. And I said, it's, it, it was a medical emergency. Because <laughs> I thought I was going to die of fucking boredom. <laughs> You see, people, we need something to push against. That's where the adventures get exciting. That's where the good thing happens. Now, I've written a couple of books. I don't want to go on about it, but, you know, they're both published by HarperCollins, $34.99. Um, <laughs> available in the foyer afterwards. My, in, my, in my second book, How We Met, uh, it's about how people often fall in love uh, because some wild adventure has been thrust upon them. And I use a metaphor in, in the book, because it's quite literary, that I once, um, <laughs> so not, I once, <laughs> I wrote it. Um, 
that I once interviewed uh, opera singers, and I found out that d designers who make opera singers' clothes quite often uh, heavily bone the, the, the corset area, the stomach area for opera singers so that they have something to push against to get their voices out. That's how important it is to be able to fight against something, to make something big and really special. I also mention in the book uh, that opera singers have um, all their hats and wigs uh, custom made because as a rule they have unusually large heads, which is something to do with vocal resonance and not relevant to this argument, but I thought <laughs> useful for you to know if you're ever planning on knitting a beanie for an opera singer. <laughs> so my teammates and I are delighted to have this adventure thrust upon us. Denise Minor, award-winning crime writer, playwright and graphic novelist will argue with passion and with clarity that adventures are in and of themselves bullshit. David Slack, well-known satirist and columnist and all-round good guy, will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's no need to go looking for adventure because it will come to your door and knock on it and interrupt the boring thing that you were doing. Imagine, if you would, for a moment, Romeo and Juliet, if they'd been able to choose their own adventure. If the Montagues and Capulets had said, you kids are in love, oh, fair call, your choice. That's, that's not a great love story. That's Thursday night in Hornby. <laughs> pretend that we that we don't make terrible choices for ourselves anybody else in this room being divorced I know I have yeah. we make terrible choices for ourselves from time to time right I'm sure some of you have been through that and you know divorce is okay obviously it's not the ideal scenario it's better if they die but <laughs> I'm just saying ladies and gentlemen it's not it's not what we choose it's not our own grand plan that makes life a beautiful adventure. It's what life throws at us. If life didn't hand, a, hand us lemons from time to time, we would never have made lemonade. And then I have no idea what you mix with Kentucky whiskey to make it a breakfast drink. <laughs> if life didn't send us challenges, we'd be like oysters with no grit who couldn't produce pearls. And then Lord knows what we'd clutch if someone said fuck at the dinner table. <laughs> no writer would willingly choose the wild adventure of the tyranny of the blank page, am I right, people on the stage, without an editor and a deadline hovering over us, compelling us to fill this space with words placed in a new and interesting order. If we, were, if we were all choosing our own adventures, lovely people of Christchurch, you would have no books. Is that what you want, Christchurch? <laughs> no books? Then none of us and none of you should choose our own adventures. We should let our adventures choose us. Whoa! Oh, Michelle Accord, ladies and gentlemen. Michelle Accord. <laughs> oh, my word. Let's pretend that made sense. Now, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, what an honour and a privilege to welcome to the stage the current Dan Brown, ladies and gentlemen, the guy who has sold a thousand books while we've been sitting here. Tom Scott doesn't know how successful his novel is. What a way to break it to him, eh?
not what it said on my notes. Co <laughs> Tom Scott, ladies and gentlemen, columnist, cartoonist, memoirist, playwright. He wrote a play that made me cry, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing the bastard can't do except grow hair. <laughs> he has a degree in psychology. He's a, a mainstay of New Zealand entertainment, New Zealand media, New Zealand intelligence. He of the winning smile and the losing face. Please welcome Tom Scott. I don't know what medication Joe is on. <laughs> he has to fucking double it immediately. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Tom Scott. I don't know that. He's a brilliant writer. He's a very brilliant man, and I, I love reading his columns in Wellington. I want to quote you now. I was in Christchurch covering a National Party conference many years ago, and Muldoon said something that I thought we all need to learn. He went, took a big deep breath, like that, and all the curtains in the room went up and <laughs> horizontal for about a minute, and he said, we must say no to negative thinking. <laughs> he also said, is that Tom Scott at the back? Ha! <laughs> Stand up, Tom. I sued you for libel and you lost. Ha, ha, ha! In that lovely, warm way he had. <laughs> I didn't know how short Muldoon was until Parliament one day on the third floor. He was walking towards me. I thought I had time to get away, but that shortness thing fooled me. He was actually really up on top of me, and he said... <laughs> he went, ah, Scott, isn't it? I read an article of yours on The Listener. I didn't know you could write. And I said, I didn't know you could read. <laughs> and uh, things just improved from that point on. It, it was just the icebreaker our tense relationship required. And I sort of get back to the debate, really. Um, <laughs> we were discussing sex backstage, and I said to David, can you remember the first time you had sex? He said, remember, I've still got the receipt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and yeah, he's the soul of a chartered accountant. <laughs> I can remember like it was yesterday. It was yesterday. <laughs> you should be free to choose your own adventure. I'm showing my age here, but it, it's a very weird feeling being up on stage in Christchurch, taking part in a debate without Jim Hopkins dementedly showing dandruff everywhere, <laughs> John Gadsby beaming and reeking of Cuban cigars, David McPhail spluttering like a candle in the wind until it's his turn to speak and his consonants suddenly begin gliding as smoothly as an ice hockey puck. The affable genius A.K. Grant, so full of gin you couldn't keep him near a naked flame, and Gary McCormick slipping and sliding across the stage on the industrial strength KY jelly, <laughs> leaking from the drums strapped to his back. 
He's a very naughty boy, Gary. Is he a big star down here? Oh, I can say that. Those guys knew how to choose their own adventures and to hell with the consequences. I'm being much more timid than that. Lots of New Zealand writers back in the day knew how to do that. On D-Day, our own Dennis Glover, wonderful poet, was the commander of a boat that launched American GIs onto the beaches in Normandy. Incredibly brave man. The novelist Barry Crump went crocodile hunting in the Northern Territories before he wrote his novels. The short story writer Owen Marshall was the bravest of all. He was a district high school headmaster. That takes real... <laughs> but for my money, the vagabond bard Sam Hunt is the bravest of them all. He told me a true story once and I have never forgotten it. He said, Tom, Tom, I was racing up the Foxton Straits in the old ambulance, minstrel snuggled up on a tartan car rug behind me, rain belting down, windscreen wipers slapping back and forth in time. When up ahead in the deluge, I spied a beautiful girl on the side of the road, thumbing a lift. I pull over and say, hop in, babe. She's utterly gorgeous, completely saturated, nipples poking through the wet fabric. She says, Sam, Sam, you've been so kind. You can make love to me in a bed of pine needles at the next macrocarpa stand. I say, ha, 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 Fair enough. And plant my foot to the floor. The revs shoot up, the engine roars, oil spills along the cowling. I'm crouching low over the steering wheel. She is languidly undoing the buttons of her bra. When behind me, niña, 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 <laughs> of a traffic officer's siren into the rear mirror, through the road spray and driving rain. I see a flashing red light. I pull over and dash back to his car. Officer, officer, what seems to be the problem? He said, Sam, you were speeding. I, I, I explained about the beautiful girl and the stand of pine trees. He says, I'll tell you what, Sam, I'll let you off if I can go next. <laughs> I said, that's very kind of you, sir. But it's only, it's only fair to tell you I've never rooted a traffic officer before. <laughs> I said, I, I was really intrigued. I said, how'd you go, Sam? Oh, I got a second ticket for speeding. <laughs> Sadly, I lack the kind of courage and sense of adventure, that kind of courage anyway. Not for nothing is the protagonist in Kenny Rogers' wonderful hit song, Coward of the County, called Tommy. For the flight down here, I booked a seat to the emergency exit on the plane and boarded the aircraft wearing a life jacket already partially inflated under my raincoat. <laughs> I had rosary beads, the St. Christopher medal, and the lucky rabbit's foot made out of polystyrene for the extra flotation. <laughs> As well, I had a parachute strapped discreetly on my back, 
and the thermos flask full of my own urine in my hip pocket. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to drink salt water if we went down in the sea. <laughs> Leaving nothing to chance, under my hat and coat, I was dressed as a 10-year-old girl with blonde ringlets. <laughs> Just in case there wasn't enough room in the inflatable life raft, and the chilling cry of woman and children first rang out <laughs> amongst the survivors bobbing in their debris in kerosene streaked water. Because I come from a long line of timid people. Our family motto, handed down from generation to generation, is if at first you don't succeed, give up. <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me. It's always made perfect. And the equally important corollary if it hurts, stop. No one in our family has ever won an award for valour. Glimpsing the pin just as they were about to attach a medal of any description to our chests and we would have dropped to the parade ground in a dead faint. I have been known to faint at the sight of knitting needles. Anything vaguely medical sends me into an anxiety, anxiety attack. Just this week my GP said I needed an enema and I shat myself on the spot. <laughs> In our family, every woman has required an epidural for birth, and every man an epidural for the conception. <laughs> you know those mountaineering movies where people dangle off the side of vertiginous mountain walls, and you all go wet behind the knee? Water pours down the back of my legs in the lift. My fear of heights denied me membership of the only club I've ever really wanted to join. You've probably heard of it. It's the Speaker's Chair Club at Parliament. <laughs> to qualify for this esteemed, prestigious body, you have to have sex in the chair of the Speaker of the Houses of Parliament. It has to be with a land mammal of some description. <laughs> and for obvious reasons, it's frowned upon when the House is sitting. I tried to join, but I got nosebleeds halfway up. <laughs> I inherited my hypochondria from my mother. She would pass wind at the family dinner table. <laughs> Did you hear that, kids? Did you hear that? And my father would go, the old man, this is a true story, this one. <laughs> Mum would go, <laughs> Kids, did you hear that? Did you hear that? My father would say, ships at fucking sea could hear that. <laughs> and she goes, oh, for shit's sake, woman, why don't you see a doctor? And my mother's reply was famous. She said, I'm, I'm not up to seeing a doctor at the moment. I'll see a doctor when I'm feeling better. <laughs> I've lost a critical page. <laughs> uh, oh, here goes here. Ah, we go, back we go. That's mum, I'm here, doctor, I'm feeling better. But for all that streak of cowardice that runs through the Scott family, you name any battle in Europe, the Scots have been the first to turn and flee before a single shot has been fired. <laughs> 
I love reading adventure books. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And my all-time favorite, as has been alluded to earlier, High Adventure by Sir Edmund Hillary. Ed wrote this. He was still a virgin on Everest, by the way. This is not something uh, many people know. He told me, he said, oh, Tom, I was hopeless with girls. It was a bit like my golf game. Getting a girl into bed, I was a bit like my golf game. I was okay on the fairway and hopeless on the green. <laughs> what a delicate way of putting it. <laughs> so, Ed was a virgin on Everest. That's where the energy came from. And George Lowe told me once, he said, Ed and I were both virgins on Everest. He said, and I think I have a high altitude record of my own, which has not been universally acknowledged. I had the highest wank on Everest at 27,000 <laughs> 27, feet. But no one, you'd never see that written up anywhere. <laughs> Ed wrote High Adventure when he came back and uh, married Louise. Uh, and uh, he wrote this book in about three or four weeks. And it's his best book because he was young and the, the events were still vivid and fresh and visceral in his mind. And it was a fantastic book. I loved it. I, I read it and it was so real to me. I got frostbite on my toes just sitting in my living room reading it. And Ed was far too smart to say that he'd ever conquered Everest. Ed said, never said he'd conquered Everest. Ed said, I like to think that Everest relented. <laughs> Isn't that what New Zealanders are like? We like to think that Everest relented. If I'd climbed it, I would have come back. I fucking conquered Everest. <laughs> Not Ed, Everest relented. And I loved that book. And Ed said something else. He said, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. That's another great line of Ed's. Mallory, George Lee Mallory, your great-great-grandfather. No. He's a wonderful man. I'd claim it while you can. <laughs> <laughs> Mallory said something similar, but he took too long saying it. Ed was much pithier. And uh, Ed said something else as well. He said... His other famous quote about adventure is, aim high, there is little virtue in easy victory. To which I say, fuck off. <laughs> aim high and you won't shoot your foot off. That's good enough for me. You should be free to choose your own adventure or not choose an adventure if you don't want to. And I'm in the category that says, don't do anything dangerous, don't do anything silly, in fact, there's probably something good on television anyway, and you don't have to put your life at risk. Thank you very much. <laughs> Tom Scott, lovely, lovely. Tom Scott, ladies and gentlemen. Tom Scott! Oh. The next speaker needs no introduction, ladies and gentlemen, so he's not going to get one. You know him from the back of the Sunday newspaper, you know him from the airwaves, you know him from his commentary on all sorts of things. What you may not know is that he was a speechwriter for two prime ministers, ladies and gentlemen, two prime ministers, for Geoffrey Palmer and Jim Bolger. One on the left, one on the right. That's equal, that's equal opportunity <laughs> pouring, ladies and gentlemen. So I think it would be only fair to say that, that he has to take some of the credit for, you know, when the name of either Geoffrey Palmer or Jim Bolger is mentioned in public circles, for the excitement that bubbles up in all of us, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, David Slack!
I'll be kind of disappointed if Joe Bennett doesn't get to uh, put you behind the wheel of a Toyota Camry by the end of tonight. He's putting so much effort into it. I, I, I think he could get you into it faster than uh, Paula Bennett. Uh, but sorry, Paula Morris managed to sell out the North Island. <laughs> you should not be free to choose your own adventure. If you let people choose their own adventure, it only takes about 30 seconds for the fertilizer to hit the blade. You do that, and 20 million people say, hey, you know what would be a good idea? Donald Trump for president. <laughs> people should not be allowed, obviously. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> right, one, one more thing. Um, if you're growing up in fielding, you just more or less assume that the rest of the world knows more, uh, but you go out, and in, out, go out into the world and you find out it's pretty much the same. The human condition is three things. Hungry, scared, horny. And I think if you really analyze every book that's ever been written, every book ever written, the underlying message is, how much of this can anyone take? People say life's too short. I say for most people, it's probably a bit on the long side. <laughs> Paula Morris actually came and asked me what I was going to talk about tonight. I told her, and she put it into her speech. Who does that? Did she ask you, Michelle? <laughs> Denise, Denise, you wouldn't crumble under question. You're, 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 no. I'm the sucker. I'm from Fielding. Um, actually, I'm from Fielding 15 years after Tom. We, we both went to Fielding Agricultural High School. We both lived on Cambolton Road. We were, we, everything about our life was the same, except really he is, the, our lives are the demonstration that it, it comes the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. <laughs> people say life's too short. I say for most people it's probably a bit on the long side. How many times can a human being watch Coronation Street how many times do you need to listen to Toto singing about the rains down in Africa? And if you're still doing it after 10 times, what's the matter with you, bro? Life offers a few actual pleasures. A cheese scone. Hammering a nail into a four by two. The natural state of balance that a seven ounce glass has when it's tipped upwards. Fielding in your rear view mirror. This completes the life, the list of life's great pleasures. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. TED talk. <laughs> uh, one more thing. You cannot actually stop people having adventures because even if you don't go out to find them, the adventures come to your door and hammer on it. I stay at home mostly and avoid, avoid adventures, but of course, if you live in a house in New Zealand, you can't help yourself and you have to keep renovating it until every floor has Italian tiles, and every wall has a splashback. So, I have tradies who keep turning up to be inside my house, and they all bring the ruckus. They're all on an adventure. One comes from South Africa. He's really friendly, really nice. He's obliging. When he isn't putting in framing and bracing jib, he's in the great outdoors. He's a keen photographer. He'll say, here are some photos of our picnic. Here are some photos of our bird watching. Here are some photos of our tramp into the beautiful wilderness. What a pretty country New Zealand is. He'll also say, David, you know what you need to do? You need to keep a saw by your bed to protect yourself from intruders. <laughs> like this one, see? And he pulls it out. See, these special super ragged teeth? You try to grab this. Go and grab it. You know what'll happen to your hands if I pull? The dude can't grab it. 
Here are some photos of our picnic. Here are some photos of our board bird watching. Here are some photos of our tramp into the beautiful wilderness. What a pretty country New Zealand is. He'll also say, you know, 5,000 years of humans, that's all it's been. It's been proven. We've only been here 5,000 years. You don't have to get him started about the evidence that's been dug up and kept secret. He will start himself. Also, there's Hussein who came to paint the roof. He was from Iraq, and you have never met a more obliging guy. His price was just a fraction of any of the other quotes. Are you sure that's enough, I asked? He said, oh, yeah. Up he goes in bare feet. We look up at the sky, spitting a little. No trouble, he says. I keep working. Then a few minutes later, I hear one hell of a crash, and Hussein has come off the roof. Fortunately, there was a garden. He goes off to the doctor and rings back that afternoon. The doctor says, just bad bruising, and he'll be fine. But he strongly recommends that the patient stay off roofs. So I find another painter. No, no, he doesn't need a brush. He does spray paints. No, no, he's not worried about the treacherous service. He's got a harness and a mate to hook it up to who stands on the other side of the roof for ballast. Three grand? No, mate, he'll do it for 300. Perfect roof painting weather, mate, he says. Barry says as he, they strap on their harnesses and they get ready to rope themselves together. They'll be done by lunchtime, he says, and then he's going home to have a beer and listen to the races at Taupo. His mates have a roughie running that afternoon. It's got to piss him. He's putting 300 on it. <laughs> you can tell where this story is going. I checked the results the next morning. The horse ran down the track, couldn't stick. Neither did the paint. <laughs> you can climb through the Andes and shit if you want, but for my money, if you're, you're not going to get more excitement and entertainment than I get from having the painters in. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> I uh, also like the builder who was putting in our clothesline, and when the neighbor's handbag dog started yapping, uh, he looked at it in its direction, and he said, all deadpan, settle down, killer. <laughs> Guy on a tour rig comes to a quote for the bathroom, and you think to yourself, who's paying for that tour rig? And you look around, and you can't see anyone else, and you think, oh, me. <laughs> 80 grand for a bathroom? These guys, these guys bring me about as much as about as much adventure as I can handle. So to sum up, I pay people to come and give me adventures in the privacy of my own home. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how thrilling it is to realize that deep down you're just Donald Trump. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> oh, and one more thing. <laughs> I rang Tom Scott from my home one day and I asked him about his childhood memories. And before you know it, we're talking about Russian Jack. Well, you know, he said, all along the bank of the Oro River, there were huts made of flax and rolpo where the tramps would sleep. There were still tramps then in the 50s, unemployed men who would knock on the door and ask for a meal, swaggies like Russian Jack. And sometimes, Tom said, with a lonely housewife, they would get sex as well as scones, but mostly a cup of tea and scones. And I said, oh, I'm not sure about that. He said, just because you haven't heard about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. You never came home to find your mother readjusting her clothing and saying, oh, Russian Jack's been here. What a lovely man. <laughs> I started thinking back, and you know, I was always talking about Russian Jack. And whenever we drove past him, she'd wave out to him, and I, oh, my God, it's my whole life a lie. <laughs> so don't ring anyone either. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> David Slack, ladies and gentlemen. David Slack. Well, you know how this introduction is going to start. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's my duty, honour and privilege and pleasure to introduce to the uh, lecture and the Dan Brown of our time, ladies and gentlemen. 
While you've been sat in this audience, he has sold more books than I have in my life. Um, his novel, The Woman in the Window, is selling um, in the millions, ladies and gentlemen. He's already working on the sequel. How much is that doggy? Um, <laughs> and the good news for you and me is it will flop. Um, they all do. He'll spend the rest of his life trying to live up to the satisfactions that he's experiencing just this moment. So please be kind to him. The rest of his life is going to be shit. Please, please welcome to the stage AJ Finn! Give him hell, mate. Thank you for that. Give him hell. Let me share it. I was saying upstairs before the awards reception that this is my first time in New Zealand. And I'm grateful to Word for importing me and for allowing me to inflict myself upon you tonight. Prior to traveling to Auckland two days ago, I spent a week in Sydney, and I learned quite a lot about Australians. I learned that kangaroos are not merely adorable marsupials, but also food, which was a surprise. I learned as I said upstairs that the term to root means to have sex with. <laughs> and I learned this when my mother and I were on a museum tour and I asked the museum guide if she and I could go root around in an exhibits room. <laughs> I also learned that the Australian government is just as fucked up as mine. So it's a pleasure to be in New Zealand. To quote my president, your country is not a shithole. There is indubitably much to be said for not choosing one's own adventure. That said, I'd like to tell you a story that illustrates the dangers of an adventure that's thrust upon you and the possible salvation in choosing an adventure of your own. Let me whisk you Ghost of Christmas past style back to May 2001, which was for me a month of miracles. At my Oxford graduation exercises, I delivered a valedictory address widely acclaimed as audible and in English. <laughs> I lost my virginity also audibly, <laughs> also in English. I was admitted to the university's doctoral program in the lucrative field of early modernist literature, which meant that one day I might refer to myself as an Oxford graduate whilst filing for unemployment. And on the 17th of the month, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. <laughs> You're not laughing now, are you? <laughs> My psychiatrist scribbled a prescription for Zoloft. Now, he said to me, don't go thinking pills will fix everything. Of course not, I said, wondering how quickly pills would fix everything. Chronic depression sinks its fangs into you, and you can't shake it loose, he said. It's nicknamed the black dog. I reflected. I rejected. I'd grown up with dogs, as had my parents. The walls of my mother's family home in East Hampton were paneled with portraits of Pooch's past. Tony, Mouse, Tugboat. There was a cat, too, rescued from my uncle's fraternity house and named, like any proper fraternity cat, Shitface. <laughs> but this isn't a story about him. No, dogs, black or otherwise, were no enemy of mine, 
I could, I mused, liken my depression instead to some other evil, say, the two hulking, sweaty brutes who beat me up throughout primary school, Susan and Maureen. <laughs> Besides, I knew, for I was 21 years old and knew everything, that this illness was but a phase. But one and a half decades on, the depression had blighted, blotted, blackened vast tracts of my life, a cognitive forest fire. It raged within my head, and man, did I rage back. I medicated, I meditated, I resorted to hypnotherapy, to ketamine therapy, to retail therapy. Most fruitfully, I engaged a psychotherapist who explained to me, to my disbelief, that many people, most people even, do not feel ceaselessly sad or bad about themselves. But what about Ivanka, I argued. <laughs> my therapist ignored me. What you're experiencing isn't typical, he said. I thought about this, then told him I couldn't imagine feeling any other way. Finally, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And here's where I chose my own adventure. But first, let me rub this in. On the surface, I was reasonably rubless. An employer once compared me to a Ferrari, by which I assumed he meant overrated and destined someday to be owned by Asian businessmen. <laughs> But in fact, he was speaking about my performance. Like Adele, I've thrived on both sides of the Atlantic. I've contributed reviews to major newspapers and periodicals, earning literally tens of dollars in the process. <laughs> I've taught Forster at Oxford by screening Howard's End on DVD for two hungover students. And despite an unprepossessing infancy during which I won an ugly baby contest at my father's office, I am now semi-fit to be viewed by the semi-naked eye. My French host family even dubbed me C sur D, which translates as six out of 10. <laughs> Depression was and remains an adventure that was thrust upon me. But finally, I was persuaded to try ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. And here I'm actually going off script because I feel this should come from the heart. Electroconvulsive therapy is scary. You are strapped into a machine, electrodes are placed on your noggin, and a seizure is induced for about 30 seconds. And this happens three times a week for one or two months. And it worked. And I'm very grateful for that. My psychiatrist described that to me as an adventure. It's one I'm very glad I took. When I was told I had bipolar disorder, I remember saying to my therapist, you know, I've seen Homeland. <laughs> and I've never gone full carry. But thanks to his intervention, thanks to the adventure of self-treatment, and particularly of ECT, which is a treatment I undergo once a year, my life has rounded a sharp corner. And self-discipline helps too. I augment it with that. Every morning, I arise early and visit the gym, sometimes even going inside. I swim daily. I see my therapist regularly, whatever the weather, internal or external. I practice yoga to the horror of my instructor. Downward facing dog doesn't mean you just lie there on your fucking stomach, he'll snap. <laughs> Reading, swimming, therapy, ECT, medication, these are adventures I've chosen for myself. And for my money, they outflank the option of not choosing one's own adventure. 
The other adventure I selected for myself in recent years was to write a book. I worked for 10 years in publishing on both sides of the Atlantic. And a couple of years ago, I decided I would try my hand at it myself, having drawn upon my experiences with mental health and mental illness. To date, the book has been published in 41 territories, excuse me, 43 territories, 41 languages, and a major movie is being made starring Amy Adams, Julianne Moore, and Gary Oldman. So my fucking brain can suck it. <laughs> I would not have chosen the adventure of depression that was forced upon me by genetics, but I'm very glad that I adventured my way out of it. Thank you. Rarely has a prediction that the rest of his life is going to be shit been more regretted. <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> I hope the next book booms, mate. <laughs> right, moving on. Ladies and gentlemen, our final speaker for this evening, what a treat in store, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Um, it's Denise Mina or Minor. Denise Mina or Minor is from Scotland. Denise Mina Minor is a crime writer. There are a lot of Scottish crime writers. Why? I've no idea. There are very few Scottish cookery writers. <laughs> I see a niche, actually. <laughs> I see a murder committed with a deep-fried Mars bar. But, um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's lovely to have her in the country. Please welcome to the stage, Denise Mina Minor. Thank you. Well, we should be free to choose our own adventure. No, definitely not. Uh, I'm going to tell you a cautionary tale about someone who chose their own adventure. My nephew, Sam. I'm not even changing his name because I'm so annoyed. Uh, this is my, my nephew, Sam, uh, came to stay with us. He was somewhat troubled. And he came to stay with us. And every evening, he would say, I'm going to my room to practice my dancing. He was 25. He would go to his room to practice his dancing. And uh, he decided, anyway, his life took off. He got a job. He got a number of girlfriends. How the hell that happened, I don't know. He's from London. And he went to bars and he said, yeah, I met these girls. And they said, uh, what age are you? And uh, he was 19 at the time. And he said, I said to them, I'm 19. And they said, you look much older than 19. And then we talked for a bit. And then they said, oh, yeah, no, you are 19. He's an idiot. <laughs> So Sam decided to go out into the world with his girlfriend and have new adventures, and he decided he was going to walk the wall of China. So he spent a year and a half raising money, and he, came, he went and walked the wall of China, and he came back. This is what happens when people get to choose their own adventure. That's me on the wall. That's me in the wall. <laughs> That's just the wall. <laughs> This is, this is the, that's close up of the wall. That's what happens when people choose their own adventure. 
This idea that adventures are things that you have to go out and orchestrate bungee jumping, shut up. You're falling. Um, this idea that life isn't just going to come at you. I'll tell you how to have an adventure. You don't need to choose this adventure. Do what I did this evening, ladies and gentlemen. Don't read to the end of the email. Whoa! <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> now, many of you are from Scottish backgrounds, are you? Are a lot of you Scottish people? Well, I, I, you know, I have to say it's very adventurous of you to invite a Glaswegian to a friendly argument. I think that's very, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, you chose your own adventure. I always think of the di Scottish diaspora as, you know, the people with a bit of gumption got up and left and the troglodytes like us, we're the ones that were left. You know, we've got cousins, we came from Northern Ireland. Half of our cousins went to America and they're lawyers in Boston. For so I think it must just be being argumentative. We're all lawyers. Um, they went to America, they went to Boston and became lawyers. They've appeared before the Supreme Court. They've done incredible things with their lives and they came over to visit us. And honestly, for, they were there for a week and a half and for the week and a half, they were like that. <laughs> but I should say they were like that because we're, we're all so small and poorly fed, they couldn't quite believe that we were related to them, but we've all got exactly the same face, so it was very, very clear that we were. But those people had a bit of gumption. They chose their own adventure. They don't even have rickets. <laughs> no malnutrition. No facial scarring. That's what happens when you choose your own adventure, when you get to go out into the world. Um, the tyranny of fun, I want to talk about. Uh, you know, this idea that we all have to go off and have orchestrated fun, as if life isn't just going to happen to you, as if chaos isn't going to erupt around you. Maybe it doesn't happen to you all the time. I'm from a gigantic family, and I'd like to read to you now a small, this is a small um, interaction between my mother and my sister. My mom and dad got divorced 23 years ago, and my, mom's, my sister's been managing my dad this whole time. My mom says to my sister, Aunt Anka's puzzled because she doesn't have your number. Denise is away to New Zealand. I hope all is well with you. Discovered I'm still married to your father. Kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> this from my sister. This is from mum. Unbelievable. <laughs> this from me. I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing long enough to be sad about it. <laughs> this from her. Good point. <laughs> Chaos is going to find you. You've got enough people in your life, chaos is going to find you. This idea that we all have to put on party hats and sing certain songs. Have you ever, were you ever in a family at a Christmas dinner, say, party hats on, just before a divorce? Oh, Jesus. So grim. So, so grim. If you want an adventure, come to Glasgow and taste the food. Here's an adventure for you. If you want an adventure, come to Glasgow and try and have a friendly argument. There's an adventure. Adventure will find you. Um, as writers, we travel around the world and we end up in very bizarre scenarios. For example, me speaking authoritatively to people who I just don't have a clue what's going on and I'm bursting for the toilet. There's an adventure. I'm already having an adventure. Um, the best, most baffling adventure, they can be like dream sequences sometimes. I was in our house in Denmark with Isabella Yendi. And for some reason, I didn't really speak the language, but for some reason we ended up in a Spiegel tent, which is a wooden tent, eating ham. That's all there was. There was tons and tons and tons of ham. So we ate loads of ham, and then someone came along and got someone to translate, and this is what they said. You're on telly in five minutes. You need to go to the makeup room. I was like, what? So I got there, and who was sitting in the makeup chair before me 
that the Danish Barry, Mar Barry Manilow. And so he took up all the makeup lady's time. So all she could really do was put on concealer. So I just looked like a plate. You know that, <laughs> you know the, that, that, the fresco that the ladies tried to fix? That's what I looked like. Uh, so I just looked like a plate. So we're sitting there and they said, don't worry, the man who's interviewing you speaks English. He didn't. He didn't speak any English at all. So uh, at a certain point in the evening, I was shoved on stage. I'm sitting there with basically bacon all down my front, a plate for a face, and it was for Save the Children. Was it Save the Children? But uh, for some reason in Danish, that translates as red barnet. So red barnet was on there. Do you know what barnet is? It's your hairdo. Uh, and the man had a red barnet. And uh, so I'm sitting there and the man said to me, he was speaking very fluently in Danish and he turned around to me and he said, your books of crime? That was the question. And I said, yes. <laughs> adventures will find you. You don't need to go looking for adventures. Um, these kinds of things happen all the time. I was on with a brilliant writer called Asa Larson and actually, I didn't actually say yes, I said yes. What do you think, Asa? And she was laughing so hard she couldn't answer. And she, she understood what was going on. I don't know what was going on. I still don't know what was going on. But um, I won't eat bacon again in, in a hurry, I'll tell you that much. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is what I would suggest. Instead of going out and choosing your own adventure, what kind of nonsense? What sort of gap year nonsense is that? Instead of going out and choosing your own adventure, come to an event like this. Ask if you can go on last because you're not really quite sure what's going on. <laughs> Be massively jet-lagged. Jot notes down as you're sitting there. Um, only half finish every sentence because you're laughing at what the people are saying. Uh, draw a staircase. That's another thing, another thing you might like to do. And, um, uh, and thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Please be the We come to the about-face conclusion of the evening, ladies and gentlemen, where the two uh, leading speakers, the number one speakers on either side, sum up their completely non-existent arguments. And we flip the, the, the turnaround, so we begin with the negative and with three minutes to go to summarise everything, Michelle Acorta! <laughs> Before I, before I begin the summary, I just want to say to AJ, that was um, honest and sensitive and emotionally moving and erudite, which at an event like this is wildly inappropriate and just a <laughs> It was just a bit fucking rude. So... I, God, I just adore Tom Scott. And if that was an amazing uh, little piece of information that he gave us tonight. Ed Hillary was still a virgin on Everest. Uh, and as he said, not something many people know or need to. So <laughs> I'm going to take all the $5 notes out of my wallet as soon as this is over. Oh, but he does tell a great story, uh, and I, I do recommend that you buy his fabulous book, Drawn Out. That's not maybe what you're expecting. I bought it. I thought it was going to be about his love life, um, his romantic technique, but <laughs> that's not as drawn out. So, um, <laughs> quickie. 
Uh, and, and how delightful, just delightful, Tom, to, um, to have uh, on this particular day, the day before Father's Day, all of those dad jokes. So um, <laughs> let me summarize. Oh, let me summarize uh, our argument uh, this way. Um, my aunt, uh, my mother's sister-in-law, uh, is a very sweet woman. Uh, she lives in a retirement village. She's in charge of most things there, including the social activities and, and which table goes first at the buffet. Um, her financial situation is what people usually describe as comfortable, right? So, like, what I mean by that, I'm sure you'll understand. Uh, if a ladro knick-knack catches her eye, she can have it. Do you know what I mean? It's like living in Fendleton. And, and she goes on cruises and coach tours. Uh, she chooses her own adventures. She's sensitive enough to be aware that my mother's fiscal situation is not quite as comfortable as hers. Now, don't get me wrong, my mother has a, a rich and fulfilling life. She does yoga. Uh, she's, on the, she's on the libraries committee. Uh, she's belonged to a book club for 20 years. She's recently taken up swearing, which is... <laughs> It's true, she's, she really, she has. I mean, don't, please, it, it hasn't gotten in the way of her other activities. She's still got time for, for book club and so forth. Um, but I have noticed now that when she says she's off to a library's committee meeting and, and she's got to take the fucking hors d'oeuvres, it's just delightful. So <laughs> anyway, my aunt knows that my mother is less able to choose her own adventures. So my mother has noticed that my aunt, who possibly feels a little bit sorry for her, doesn't tell her about the next grand adventure that she has chosen, in case I think, you know, my mother gets a bit sad that she can't do them too. But she does, after the adventure, come home and furnish my mother with full reports. Most recently, my aunt organised a bus tour from her retirement village in Hamilton. I know, what a picture. Uh, to the chateau at Ruapehu. Uh, and she came home and she phoned my mother. She said, it was, oh, the chateau was beautiful. It was elegant. It was so stylish. Oh, they had such a lovely time. That very evening, my mother went to the library's committee meeting. Uh, and one of my mother's friends, coincidentally, had just also been to the chateau. And my mother said, well, what was it like? And, and her friend said to, her, said to her, oh, Donna, it's not what it was. It was full of people on coach tours. <laughs> We didn't stay. So, and it's the most I've seen my mother laugh in a very long time. She said it was the most delightful thing she'd ever heard and it made her believe that the gods were listening and that they have a sense of humor and that that kind of serendipity is the sweetest thing. So ladies and gentlemen, please do. Let your adventures choose you because if we choose our own adventures, we'll end up on a fucking coach tour to the chateau. <laughs> And to conclude where we came in, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage to summarise the affirmative argument, international author Paula Morris! Well, unlike Michelle, I didn't pre-prepare my final speech. I'm actually uh, choosing to respond to what we've heard tonight. It's been quite interesting. Um, from Michelle, we've learned, well, she's made a few poor life choices. that her book sells for $39.95, <laughs> that she disrespects a national treasure. 
Graham Henry, or a name that rhymes with that. Um, and then she got into a very interesting little discussion then involving retirement village buffets, bus tours, and the city of Hamilton. Which leads me to David Slack. I believe referred to me as Paula Bennett. <laughs> As if. Now, David, as far as I understand it from the way he characterized his sad life today, um, he stays at home thinking about splashbacks and having remorse and gets all his excitement from having the painters in. So, no wonder he's a columnist for the, the Herald, is it? The Herald? Now, Denise, now Denise is from Glasgow. Respect, I used to live there. Um, she describes herself as small and poorly fed, so, you know, she gives us a cautionary tale. Um, she argues against fun. She warns us about going to the Great Wall of China. And it, she does remind me of, um, of something I learned in Glasgow, which is something called Motherwell Rules. Do you know about that? Yeah, you get into a fight, Motherwell Rules apply. It's a pool cue, one in your eye and the other one up your ass. <laughs> that is our classy opposition there. Now. <laughs> Now look at, look at my team over there. Firstly, there's me, I'm really ace, obviously, and said really good things that I wrote this afternoon. Now, we have Tom Scott there, national icon. He's told us about masturbation on Mount Everest. He's told us about his mother's flatulence. He's told us about a nipple involving Sam Hunt and the traffic officer, and did they have sex? I'm really not clear about it, but anyway, it was very interesting. He's told us about dressing like a 10-year-old with blonde ringlets. He's told us about aspiring to having sex with a land mammal in the House of Parliament. I mean, <laughs> now that's classy. Then, <laughs> and obviously on point. Now, the person who Joe calls AJ Finn, but I call Dan Mallory because that's the way we roll, um, explained to us, us that the, the term to root means to have sex in Australia, which is a good thing to know if we ever go there. He's, he's, he's tugged on our heartstrings. He was an ugly baby. <laughs> he had a cat named Shitface. <laughs> he said that the term I'll never forget, and I'll put it into a book, maybe, as, a, as an epigram or something like that. My fucking brain can suck it. But the thing I think he said that was the most important thing that really sums up our debate tonight more than anything we've heard, the inspiring words, your country is not a shithole. <laughs> and the reason he said this, and the reason that Tom Scott is free to dress as a 10-year-old with blonde ringlets on a plane, is because we are free to choose our own adventure. And I've really run out of things to say. I have nothing to sum up. I feel that my wine has now depleted, that it's really time for us to go out to the bar. So why don't you just admit, our team really ruled tonight, didn't we? We really ruled. Thank you so much. Well, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, debate is done.
and a decision needs to be reached. I am no adjudicator. You, ladies and gentlemen, the playing audience, are the adjudicators for this debate. There is a long tradition of this debate being a draw. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if you believe that the negative team won the debate, let us know now! Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you believe that the affirmative team won the debate, let us know now. <laughs> I used to teach at Christ College, ladies and gentlemen. It had a motto. Bene tradita bene servanda which was very loosely translated as good traditions well-maintained. Well, fuck that. Victory to the affirmative team! <laughs> it remains only for me to thank AJ, who has another name which I've forgotten already, and Tom, and Paula, and Michelle, and David, and Denise, and you, the audience, thank you very much and good night. <laughs> On your way.